0: We're continuing our sermon series through the gospel according to Mark. Our passage this morning is from Mark chapter 4 verses 1 through 20. Before we hear the word of the Lord, let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to us as we prepare to read and hear your word. We pray that your spirit would prepare our hearts for what you have to say to us today that we might truly hear and that we might respond in faithful obedience. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The word of God, it is written. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables." So that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you under Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, when they hear, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We come this morning to what is one of the largest sections of teaching in Mark's gospel. We have been hearing since about midway through the first chapter that Jesus has been preaching and teaching as he traveled around Galilee, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand and calling for repentance. And we are told that people have been astonished by his teaching. But up until this point, Mark has recorded very little of Jesus' actual teaching, And so now we have the opportunity to hear for ourselves the content of this teaching. We're told in verse 2 that this content came in the form of parables. Now I think most of us are familiar with what a parable is. To state it really simply, a parable is an earthly story about a heavenly thing, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. But while parables use simple aspects of everyday life, fishing and farming, housekeeping and family life, royalty and banquets, this is not to say that parables are just simple illustrations. As one commentator points out, they tend to puzzle as much as enlighten and are designed to shock and challenge rather than to offer reassuring explanations or illustrations of moral platitudes. They might be short similitudes or they might be longer, more complex allegories. Regardless, they, by their nature, confound. They demand that we push deeper to find new insight, a deeper reality that lies beneath the surface meaning. So in a way, they're like stained glass windows. If they are heard simply from their base meaning, they seem dull and lifeless, the way a stained glass window looks if we're viewing it from the outside. But once you move Inside the windows become brilliant and radiant with light, don't they? Our goal in listening to parables is to seek to move inside to discover their true meaning. And once this new insight is discovered, the parable beckons response at the level of attitude and will and action. Therefore, parables are not meant to simply be cognitive. They're not simply meant to be a transmission of information. The parables are aimed, rather, at transformation. They are meant to change our way of thinking in a way that changes our behavior. In Mark's gospel, parables are the means by which Jesus teaches us us about the kingdom of God, which, as Mark's gospel will increasingly show, the kingdom overturns some of the most basic human attitudes and values. It challenges its hearers to a radically new program of life and action. Parable this morning is, on the one hand, a parable about parables. Jesus is teaching. That his teaching about the kingdom will come in this form. He's giving us a paradigm. And this makes sense to some degree, right? How does one teach about something so unknown, so foreign, than to compare it with what is known? But this parable is also about the nature of response to the kingdom of God. So what we find here in Mark 4 is not simply a discourse about parables, nor a discourse about the kingdom of God. It is a discourse about both, which are shown to be inseparable. But in order to understand it, we have to first understand the context in which this teaching takes place. If you have been reading through Mark's gospel with us, then you have seen Jesus begin his ministry and immediately be met with both welcomed reception on one hand and blunt rejection on the other. There are those who recognize that Jesus was preaching and teaching and performing miracles as one who had great authority. And the message that he is proclaiming and demonstrating is that the kingdom of God has drawn near in himself. His ministry is met by these individuals with wonder and amazement and curiosity and attraction. And a willingness to follow with what could be seen as reckless abandon. There is a desire for more of Jesus. But his ministry is also met with opposition and open hostility. It isn't simply the evil spirits who are none too happy that Jesus has begun his kingdom work. There are those who see Jesus doing these signs and wonders and teaching what seems to them to be heresy and blasphemy. And they have assigned Jesus' ministry to the work of the evil one. Just earlier in chapter 3, we not only see great crowds following Jesus and Jesus selecting a committed group of disciples out of this crowd, we also see those who reject him. The scribes, in particular, accuse Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebul. That this is what gives him the power to cast out demons. And so it is in this context where Mark has drawn for us a sharp distinction between those who follow Jesus and those who oppose him that we get this teaching on parables. So it shouldn't be lost on us that what Jesus is teaching here is in part a recognition that there is a range of response to the proclamation of the gospel. We know this because we have Jesus' interpretation of the parable in verses 13 through 20. On the one side, there are those whose hearts are hardened, who will not hear at all. And on the other side of the spectrum, there are those who will hear and follow and grow in faith. And their lives will produce fruit in abundance. And we see this range in the four soils in this parable. We notice that there is a progression in the soil starting with a soil that doesn't allow the seed to even begin to grow next to a soil that allows the seed to start to grow but then quickly dies next to a soil that allows the seed to survive but does not allow it to be fruitful and finally to a soil that allows for growth and fruitfulness. We should not fail to recognize here that this parable about these four soils really boils down to just two types of people. Those who respond to the gospel in true faith, a faith that submits To Jesus Christ as the Son of God, trusts in him alone as Lord and Savior. A faith that follows Jesus even through the hardships of life. A faith that not only endures these hardships, but perseveres in the hope of the promises of the gospel. In a way that produces fruit. There are these people. And then there are those who ultimately reject the gospel. The outsiders of verse 11. Those who do not understand that Jesus is preeminent and has supremacy and takes precedence over everything else in life. And they might reject his message on the initial hearing of it. They might reject it when it gets put to the test. They might reject it because the hope it offers seems too far away and intangible. But they all reject it nonetheless even if their initial response wasn't indifference or opposition. In the parable, the seeds in the first three soils were all failures because they did not ultimately produce fruit, which is what the sower was after, a harvest. And when we look at it in this way, the odds do not seem in favor of the good soil, do they? It makes up only one out of the four. And I think this is what gives the parable some of its bite. This causes a crisis for us. We see here a picture of a narrow way. And there are many things standing in the way of hearing and obeying. We're told to listen. Because faith requires hearing. And in hearing we are called to respond. Not casually. Not casually but careful, intentional hearing and responding. So I'd like to push into this parable a little more in two ways. First, I want to deal with what it says to us as hearers and receivers of the gospel. And second, I want to deal with what it says to us as sowers and spreaders of the gospel. So, first, the parable challenges us to think about the soil of our own hearts. It challenges us to think about the soil of our own hearts. There is a refrain that echoes through these parables Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So, it asks each of us to consider Do I have ears to hear? What sort of soil is the seed of the gospel falling on when it hits my ears? Are there obstacles that are preventing my hearing the gospel and responding to it? Is the seed lost on me? Or does it find a fertile ground in which to grow and produce fruit? The parable demands sober self-reflection. And in this way, it is a means by which those who are currently outside the kingdom of God might be brought into the kingdom of God as the Spirit uses this this parable to stir within us and to call us to repentance and a life of faith and commitment to Jesus Christ. It's hard not to ponder if the soil of my heart is one of the first three types of soil, one of those who fall outside of God's kingdom, not hearing at all or giving only a quick superficial hearing in one ear and out the other without effort or heeding. Dearly beloved, the gospel does not allow for a casual hearing. Following Jesus is not a a once-a-week venture. It is not a hobby that we do when it is convenient for us. It is not something that we take off and put on like a cozy sweatshirt that gets worn when we feel like it. Jesus calls us to come and die with him on the cross and to be resurrected with him from the grave to newness of life. The gospel demands our full attention and our full submission. Certainly Mark's audience understood the cost of following Jesus. They knew the potential threat of being the rocky soil. Being a Christian in Rome during Nero's reign was not easy. It was one thing to hear the gospel and to be excited about the promises it offered. But following Jesus and being a light to the world could take on a whole new meaning when Nero decided to hang you up and use you as a human torch to illumine the streets of Rome. Is Jesus still worth following if this is what it means to follow him are the promises of the gospel still attractive if it meant getting thrown to wild animals in the Colosseum, is knowing the surpassing greatness of jesus christ worth dying a horrible death for how much faith do you have in him Now, Mark's audience might have found the thorn-infested soil a little harder to relate to, but we don't, do we? This might be the point at which we need to examine ourselves most closely. We have endless distractions, endless distractions which choke out the word in our lives. We can occupy ourselves with work or leisure. We can spend every waking moment chasing wealth, the American dream, trying to keep up with the Joneses running after the pleasures and the comforts of this world. And we have access to countless pleasures to indulge ourselves in. Pick your poison. Is it sex? Is it food? Is it status? Is it fame? Is it wealth? Is it gadgets? Speaking of gadgets, we have cell phones and tablets and computers and big screen TVs that seem to never turn off. So that night and day we can be kept in constant contact with what everyone around us is doing so we can never stop comparing ourselves to others and seeking to outdo them in the ways of this world. So that we never have to stop what we're doing and rest from our work so that we can unceasingly hear the voice of the one whispering to buy the next greatest thing to find happiness in. Dearly beloved, do we ever stop to ask ourselves, who is Jesus in the midst of all of this stuff? Is he just someone I can add to all my other possessions to round out my otherwise wonderful life? Is he just another insurance policy that protects me from the threat of fire? Is he just another piece of flair that gives me the image I desire to project? Or is he my all in all? In light of him, do all my possessions, all my other relationships, all my status and wealth and comfort seem as rubbish? Do we think, I I think I would be willing, I think I would be willing to sacrifice everything if Jesus called me to do that. Or do we think losing everything would be no sacrifice at all? Because in Jesus Christ, I have gained everything. He is my prize and my portion. Beloved, which is it? Is Jesus supreme in your life? I pray that Jesus doesn't return to find you or me unfruitful because the thorns and thistles of this world have distracted us from truly following him. It might be that we need to ask God in the power of his Holy Spirit to put his hand to the plow in the soil of our hearts and to come and to do a little weeding in our lives. Examine yourselves, beloved. In Jesus Christ, God has drawn near to us. He has lived a perfect life for our sake. He has offered up this life, suffering and dying a horrible death, innocent yet condemned as a criminal, having no sin but taking our sin upon himself that in him we might have a sufficient sacrifice as an atonement for our sin. For us, he overcame sin and death that we might have new life. do you think he hung on a cross for a casual relationship with us? Husbands, how would you feel if your wife came to you and said, I know you've promised to love me in sickness and health, plenty and want, etc., but I think that there's enough of me to pass around. Some nights I'm just going to stay at work. Some nights I'm going to go out and chase my hobbies. Maybe I'll just give myself to other men while I'm at it. No, no, we would never be satisfied with that arrangement. Wives, what if your husband said something like this? Church, you are the bride of Christ. He died for you that you might be his bride. Do you understand? We aren't dating Jesus. Casual commitment to him is spiritual adultery. Do you understand who he is and what it means to be his disciple? The parable doesn't just challenge us to think about ourselves as receivers of God's word, though it also challenges us to think about ourselves as sowers of God's word. As those who consider ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, we're called to sow the seeds of the gospel. Just a few weeks ago, we finished up a study on the marks of a healthy church. And one of the areas that we spent a great deal of time discussing in our church assessment at the end of this study was evangelism. According to our assessment of ourselves, we had some room for improvement in this aspect of our ministry individually and corporately. Dearly beloved, this parable has something to say to us about evangelism. Now you might identify Jesus as the sower here. He is certainly the sower, capital S. He not only comes to spread God's word, he is actually the embodiment of God's word. In him we see the kingdom of God lived out. This parable, as we have said, is about the varied responses that Jesus gets to his ministry. But remember here that he's training up disciples to go and to do as he does. The nature of the relationship between a rabbi and a disciple is that the rabbi teaches and does and the disciple listens and hears and then teaches and does as the rabbi did. They're not just learning What he teaches, they're learning to teach and do as he does, that the kingdom of God might be spread through them. So in just a couple of chapters, we're going to find Jesus sending out his disciples with authority to proclaim and demonstrate that God's kingdom had drawn near in him. And Matthew records in his gospel that Jesus declares to them, as he sends them out, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You see, Jesus so closely relates himself to those who go and declare the gospel in his name that if someone welcomes these messengers, they are also welcoming Jesus himself. So the parable is not just about Jesus being received or rejected. It's also about those who follow Jesus and bear his word as his ambassadors. What this means for us is this. Follow the example of Jesus set for us follow the example Jesus set for us this means that we are to expect a varied response to sharing the gospel and yet we are to sow the seed as broadly and generously as we are given the opportunity we are to sow the seed as broadly and generously as we are given the opportunity Someone who considered himself or herself judicious might hear the parable and declare that the sower is being wasteful. Why spread seed along a path? Why spread seed in an area where there's rocky soil or weeds? From a human perspective, this seems to be a waste of time and energy, right? These seeds will surely not grow. You see where I'm going with this, don't you? There are some who we encounter who might... Be judged by us not to be worth the bother. Ken Smith didn't think it was a waste of time and energy, though, to respond to the author of a critique of the Promise Keepers movement sent to a local paper in Syracuse, New York a few years back. It didn't matter that this author who had written this critique happened to be a lesbian English professor at Syracuse University who specialized in critical theory and, more particularly, queer theory. In addition to being a professor of women's studies, she was a self avowed feminist and an advisor to the LGBT student group on campus. In her own words, she was fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin. And Christians and their God, Jesus, were, quote, stupid, pointless, and menacing. By all accounts, this would have been someone that could have been easily written off as unreachable, unconvertible, not worth the waste of time and energy. But Ken Smith sent this professor a letter. It was winsome. It was gracious. It was inquiring. It was inviting So much so that this lesbian professor was intrigued by it and decided to call Ken. She thought that she might be able to use Ken for her research on the rise of the religious right that she was working on. This was not going to be a favorable piece, by the way. So she called Ken and Ken invited her to dinner with his family. And from this dinner, a relationship began where this professor had an opportunity to experience Christian hospitality. Where she had the opportunity to witness the way the gospel shapes and forms lives. The way God's kingdom has broken into our world in Jesus Christ. To see those who truly love and worship and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And this caught her off guard. She was not expecting to see what she saw and experience what she did her preconceived notions were shattered it's professor's name rosaria butterfield some of you know her story for those of you who don't Rosaria would later call herself an unlikely convert. But Rosaria gave up her entire life, all that she once held dear to follow Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. Why? Because she began to read the Bible. She began to hear God's word proclaimed and see God's word lived out in faithful discipleship. And God used this to do what he does, to seek and save the lost. And she found that God's word does indeed have the power to save. As Rosaria described it, she experienced what 19th century Scottish theologian Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection when she came to Christ. An expulsive power indeed. This is the power of the gospel to bring us from death to life, to bring us to repentance and to saving faith, to make all that we once held dear look as rubbish before the Lord. So we are to be sowers of the word, scatter the seed beloved indiscriminately. It is not our job to try to determine the worth of someone to hear the gospel because at the end of the day, we have no idea who has good soil to receive the seed. What we are to have is faith in God's sovereignty at this point. We are to have faith in the power of the word to save. We are to trust that God's word does not return to him void, but accomplishes that for which it was intended. Right? And this is the example Jesus set for his disciples. And it's the example that we've received from the apostles in Acts Think about who the apostles share the gospel with in Acts. It didn't matter if it were a eunuch from Ethiopia or the Jewish council of elders and scribes. It didn't matter if it were a Samaritan magician or Athenian philosophers. It didn't matter if it were a Philippian jailer or a Roman ruler. They spread the seed. They shared the gospel indiscriminately. They didn't care whether the person was Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, learned or uneducated, slave or master, male or female. They shared the gospel. And the Bible and history testify to the power of God's word to save. Don't worry that there are three types of bad soil and one good. Look at the text. There are six Seeds sown. Three find unfertile soil, certainly. But three find good soil. Producing a harvest of 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. A harvest that only God could produce. He is sovereign and his purposes will be worked out. The harvest will be plentiful. And where God has ordained an end, he has also ordained a means. Church. You are the means. He calls us to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we truly love God and love others, we will spread the seed broadly and generously, indiscriminately. We are also to understand that the harvest doesn't happen in a hurry, the harvest doesn't come at the end of a service. It doesn't come at the end of a conversation, at the end of a meal together, at the end of a mission trip. The harvest happens at the end of the age. Therefore, spread the seed broadly and generously and then be satisfied and trust in God to do the rest. This is my prayer that we would do this individually and corporately, that when people look at us as individual members of Covenant Presbyterian Church and as a church body, what they would behold is the mighty work of God in our midst. That what they would see is a ministry so fruitful that only God could accomplish it. That they wouldn't look at us and see a group of people who would come together even if Jesus didn't exist. So Covenant. Are you hearing God's word well and responding faithfully? Are we striving to be sowers of the seed of the gospel who share God's word broadly and generously? Are we? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray for ears to hear your word. We pray for hearts that joyfully receive it, that eagerly respond to it. We pray for fruitful lives in which your kingdom is made manifest in and through us, individually and as a corporate body. Lord, would you till up the areas of our lives where we have resisted your gospel? Will you send your spirit to break into the corners of our lives where we have remained distracted and unrepentant? Lord, will you keep the evil one from coming and snatching your word away from us. Help us to grow up into maturity into Jesus Christ, who is our head. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed.